Today's episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Seriously, they have so much and it's such a nice interface. It's been really nice and easy. It's something that just feels like a no-brainer, especially when you're kind of going through this podcast space for the first time and you realize how expensive it is and how important it is to have this type of tool to have as many sponsors you can reach as possible. And you can kind of pick and choose what works best for you and your podcast, record something, send it their way. Sometimes they want discussions, sometimes they want giveaways sometimes they want pre-roll mid-roll give them a price and if they like it they'll work with you so you never give up your rights to your podcast and podcorn is here to support you at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands the marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency creative freedom and full control of how and when we monetize Interested? Click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. The Oracle Welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing all right. That's good. Feeling hot? Kind of melty? Same. This week, we are going to be discussing a case requested by Darren of the Weird Darkness podcast, who is another wonderful person that donated to our audio equipment fund. Thank you. So we are going to be discussing the Preston Strike of 1842. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Sounds very intriguing. It is a good one. So information was pulled from the following sources. A 2019 Lancashire Post article by Henry Wittes, 2015 Atlas Obscura article by Ella Morton, a 2011 Historical Trinkets post by Kaz, a 2002 The Guardian article, Almost History, Atlas Obscura, The National Archives, Visit Preston, and Wikipedia. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. In the show notes. So if you know anything about the Industrial Revolution in general, then you may have an idea of how today's episode is going to go. Not well? No. (laughs) If not, here's a brief synopsis of what workers faced while working in factories during that time. Low wages, dangerous working conditions, less than friendly factory owners, not to mention living under the threat of being blacklisted if you were ever found out as a member of a trade union, which would, in essence, make you unhirable. Nice. And if you've ever read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which I highly recommend if you have not, then you kind of have an idea of what I'm talking about. Gross. Only we're not going to be talking about meat today. So, yay. Cool. Yay. (laughs) Just meat sacks, not, not meat. Yeah. Preston has a long and prestigious history for the industrial boom that took place in the Victorian era. In fact, the Georgian town had all but transformed overnight from a picturesque London suburb to a city of mills of all kinds, an abundance of housing, canals, a number of railways, not to mention engineering works. 
The chief export of Preston was cotton cloth, and the cotton industry was the main employer for women there for over 150 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. One of the main players in today's story is a man named Samuel Horrocks, who was the son of one of the leading families of Preston, who owned some of Britain's largest cotton mills. His firm would go through a few name changes over the years, from Horrocks, Whitehead, and Miller to Horrocks's, Crudson, and Co., before eventually becoming part of Quartels, which became one of the world's leading man-made fiber production companies. Interesting. Wow. Had, had a lot of partners, sounds like. He would also become mayor of Preston. That sounds about right. If you have money, you also have influence. So why not run the town? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just cotton that became the main industry. The creation of the Preston Gas Company also set Preston apart as the first English town other than London to be lit by gas power before it became adopted by the rest of the nation. Wow, that's incredibly ambitious. How big was the town in comparison to London? Um, It was pretty small. It was like a little suburb. Dang. And before we get too into the story, I need to give an explanation of what Chartism is and how it plays into this story. So the property-owning middle classes were given voting rights in 1832 when it came to matters of parliament and local representation. Right. Members of the working class in Britain felt they weren't being heard and they wanted to be able to give their say in voting for candidates that cared about the issues that they faced. Yeah. Specifically in Preston, a large number of the male population were affected by the Reform Act of 1832. Prior to this, any man who paid taxes was eligible to vote. And given that a huge number of the Preston male population were working class, this change in who could vote caused quite the rift between the two social classes. No. We've never heard this before. This has never once happened in history. No. Before this moment. As a movement, Chartism started in 1836, but gained the most traction between 1838 and 1848. The whole aim of the movement was to secure political rights and influence for members of the working class. The name for the movement came from the People's Charter that was created by the working class, detailing the six aims of the movement that include a vote for all men who are over the age of 21, the secret ballot, no property qualification to become a member of parliament, payment for members of parliament, electoral districts of equal size, and annual elections of parliament. Nice. But so far, it sounds pretty okay. Yep. So far. Over several years, members of the movement submitted petitions to parliament in 1839, 1842, and 1848, and each time they were rejected. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah. So why was it so popular in the years between 1838 and 1848? During this time, there was a spate of economic depression and hunger, which tends to manifest in civil unrest when things don't change or start to get any better. I mean, you're making a whole population hangry, so. Yeah. Really no one else to blame. Not only that, but wages would be cut and the number of those suffering from unemployment were on the rise. Awesome. And I'm sure they had great social programs at the time. Oh, yeah. The best. Yeah. Chartism gave the people something to rally behind and the idea that things could get better. After the second petition, which had 3,315,172 signatures, was rejected by Parliament in May of 1842, anger began to sweep through England. The recession alone forced many businesses to enact a 25% cut in wages 
which understandably pissed a number of people off. Wow. They're like, honestly, they're just asking to be murdered at this point. Mm -hmm. Like you have over 3 million people just wanting your head. Yep. And you're just like, no, we don't care. You don't own property. So do they remember the French? No, I guess not. That was way back when. Things have changed. We've revolutionized since then. Industrially. On Friday, August 12th, 1842, over 3,000 cotton workers gathered in Preston and vowed to strike until they received fair day's wages for the work they performed each day. The following day, Saturday, August 13th, 1842, town officials met with strikers outside the Preston Corn Exchange building at the bottom of Loon Street. Mayor Horrocks, along with the town clerk, Richard Palmer, and two local magistrates named George Jackson and John Bairstow, who also happened to be mill owners, no, mm-hmm, were joined by the combined forces of officers of the Lancashire County Police, led by Captain Woodford, and the Preston Borough Police, led by Superintendent Bannister, as well as 30 soldiers of the 72nd Highlanders. Not aggressive at all. Not a nope. show of force. Nope. No. Fine. This will end well. It ends so well. I can already tell. The protesters had met up ahead of time at Chadwick's Orchard at 6 a.m. before proceeding to Sledden's Machine Shop as they made their way down Loon Street, shutting down factory after factory and growing in number on their way to the Corn Exchange building. As the standoff started, Mayor Horrocks and John Bairstow attempted to reason with the crowd to get them to disperse and go home. Women and children who made up a portion of the crowd had come armed with stones they'd brought from the canal wharf. Oh, no. Which they then passed along to the men, who didn't hesitate to start chucking them at the police and members of the militia. Yeah, uh, that always ends well. Mm-hmm. It's reassuring. Once you start throwing stones, good things happen. Always. They made a phrase about it. Especially if you live in glass houses. Yeah. It was at this point that Mayor Horrocks read to the crowd of protesters the Riot Act. And yes, <laughs> the real thing. It's the Riot Act. Mm -hmm. In 1714, the Riot Act was passed by British Parliament and took effect on August 1st, 1715. The Riot Act was created to prevent tumults and riotous assemblies, as well as serve the dual purpose of allowing for, quote, more speedy and effectual punishing, end quote, of people engaged in civil disobedience. Awesome. The Riot Act could be read if a group of a dozen or more people were gathered and displayed signs that they would be disruptive or create civil unrest. The Riot Act allowed an elected official or officer of the law to approach a crowd to tell them to leave. Similar to the Miranda rights that are read here in the United States before you can interrogate someone, the Riot Act had to be literally read out loud before you could ask a group to break up. How long is the Riot Act? It's not very long. Okay. The Please. proclamation that had to be read aloud and quoted exactly went as follows, quote, Our sovereign Lord, the King, chargeth and commandeth all persons being assembled immediately to disperse themselves and peaceably to depart to their habitations or to their lawful business upon the pains contained in the act made in the first year of King George for preventing tumult and riotous assemblies. God save the King, end quote. Nice. After the Riot Act was read, the group would traditionally have a period of one hour to disperse peacefully. If anyone remained after the 60 minutes were up, they could be charged for committing a felony. Okay. 
there were no rules that the officer or the official who read the riot act had to stay there the full hour to ensure it was upheld. In fact, they could leave the management of that to any able-bodied bystander they felt would be a good fit, (laughs) such as a slew of police officers or armed militia. Are these people that can, can they tell time? I don't know if they had timepieces. After Mayor Horrocks read the riot act and the crowd refused to disperse, Captain Woodford walked towards the mob as if to arrest a member of the group before he was knocked to the ground. A constable who attempted to help the captain regain his feet was hit in the arm with a stick and had stones thrown at him that struck his face and chest. As the constabulary, I said it right that time. Yeah, you did. And the militia continued to be pushed back by stones. The mob was warned that if they continued to riot, that the officers would open fire. Some members of the crowd moved up Fishergate to get behind the police and military officers. It was at this point that 30 members of the 72nd Highlanders opened fire on the crowd. At first, the members of the crowd believed that they were being fired upon with blanks. But in total, 20 live rounds were fired upon the rioters, ending with four strikers deaths and three with serious injuries. The injured men were then taken to the house of recovery or hospital. Okay, just a side note, you guys are terrible shots if you shot into a crowd and you only got like eight people with 20 rounds. Keep in mind they used musket balls. No, there's no excuse, but do better, but also don't. <laughs> but also don't. I'm glad you were a bad um, shot. But, but you don't. But mm-hmm. like, do better, but don't. Those that were injured but lived included William Pilling, a 21-year-old steam loom operator from Moss Rose Street, who was employed at Dawson's Mill. He was shot below the knee and had to have his leg amputated at the dispensary on Fishergate. James Roberts, a 20-year-old steam loom operator from Savoy Street, who worked at Gardner's Mill, was shot through the wrist and had to have his hand amputated. Oh, boy. Okay. This is all before OSHA, right? Yep. Yep. No workman's comp. Brian Hodgson, a 36-year-old shoemaker from St. Peter's Square, was shot in the back and the bullet was lodged in his lower spine. He not only miraculously lived, but he survived until he passed in 1878, 36 years after he'd received the injury. And they, I'm assuming, didn't remove the bullet. Nope. So he was, he probably just very slowly died of lead poisoning. Possibly. Potentially. Dang. And he could, could he walk? I couldn't, it didn't say anywhere mm-hmm. if he could walk or not. I'm assuming, though, that all three of those men weren't unable to work after this. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Right. Those that passed included George Sourbutts, a 19-year-old weaver from Chandler Street who was employed at Gardner's Mill, was shot in the chest. Bernard McNamara, a 17-year-old cotton stripper from Burke Street who was employed at Oxendale's Mill, was shot through the right side of his belly, causing his bowels to protrude from the wound. He must have been close. William Lancaster, a 25-year-old of Blackburn, was labeled as a ringleader and shot through the chest under the fourth rib on his right side while in the act of throwing a stone. He died six days after being shot. John Mercer, a 27-year-old handloom weaver from Ribbleton Lane, was also shot through the body from his right arm, breaking the fifth rib as the musket ball ripped through his chest and exited on the left side of his spine. He died four days after being shot. 
And they're all babies. Mm -hmm. They're all under the age of 30. As a result of the riot and the death of the four workers, for better or worse, the riot stopped. Just two days after the riot, on Monday, August 15th, several factories reopened. But that didn't mean the violence was done. On Wednesday, August 17th, a mob of railway navvies, who are the people who actually build the railroads. Okay. And then a group of coal miners and weavers, armed with knives and bludgeons, stormed and shut down a number of mills, including those in Farrington, Bamber Bridge, and Walton Liddale. At one mill alone, the Whiffy Trees Mill, they broke 1,300 panes of glass during their rampage. Wow. A lot of effort. Mm-hmm. Especially since, like, I would assume that that glass is pretty dirty. Well, and I would assume that even at that point in time, it was still fairly expensive. Oh, no, it would have been a nightmare to replace. Mm-hmm. Which is probably why they did it. Mm-hmm. As the mob approached Preston from Wigan and Chorley, they found the Ribble Bridges heavily guarded by a mixture of the police and military. Orders for the crowd to disperse were given by Thomas Batty Addison, who was the Preston recorder. This dispersal was conducted with the use of force by police, with the military waiting in the wings if they needed to step in. In total, 96 people were arrested in connection to the riots that took place in Preston, and 12 people were given prison sentences that ranged in length from nine months to up to two years. Wow. The week following the deadly riots on August 13th, inquests were held in the courthouse on Tuesday, August 16th, before Richard Palmer, who was the coroner. The inquests involved the deaths of 19-year-old George Sauerbutz and 17-year-old Bernard McNamara on Loon Street. In the case of George, who was a handloom operator, the introduction of machinery basically made his trade all but obsolete. In the face of wage reductions, of course, anyone in his position would have been fearful for the state of his likelihood and future. Right. Pretty much anyone in the cotton and textile industry was right to have these sorts of fears. Yeah. Witnesses were brought forth and may have corroborated the fact that, yes, on the day of Friday, August 12th, a number of unruly people had visited a number of factories in Preston, displaying violent behaviors and basically forcing the workers to join their cause. One witness was Chief Constable Captain Woodford of the Lancashire County Police. He stated that on the morning of August 13th, he met up with Mayor Horrocks before 8 a.m. at the Bull Inn. Upon arriving, he noted that the mayor was also in the company of other magistrates and a military unit from the 72nd Highlanders. Captain Woodford went on to explain that the group encountered a mob on Fishergate and that the constables and military force had told the group to disperse. Captain Woodford alleges that members of the mob began to throw stones as they were being guided down Loon Street. And once the combined force of the military and the police constabulary reached the corn exchange, they were repeatedly attacked by members of the crowd throwing stones at them. He also alleges that the mayor himself was struck in the hand by a stone as he was in the process of reading the riot act. After about five minutes had passed and the stone throwing had yet to cease, the mayor gave the order to fire into the crowd. Captain Woodford stated that in total, 20 shots were fired into the mob in front of the corn exchange. Instead of all being shot out at one time in a volley, they were shot one by one. Captain Woodford recalls seeing a protester fall after being struck by a bullet while in the process of throwing a stone. Thomas Dixon, the surgeon who tended to George Sauerbutz, testified that he'd been hit in the chest with a musket ball that broke three of his ribs as it passed through his body. George died the following evening from his wounds. The inquest for Bernard McNamara went in much the same way as that of George. 
his sister Bridget gave testimony that her brother had gone to work at Oxendale's mill on the morning of Saturday, August 13th. Later that day, he was brought home with a continuously bleeding abdominal wound. Even after receiving medical treatment, he still passed on Monday afternoon, two days after being shot. A long time to suffer Mm -hmm. with probably very little drugs. Yep. Mm. In the cases of these two young men, and later those of William Lancaster and John Mercer, all four of the verdicts were the same. Justifiable homicide. For those that don't know what that means, basically the coroner who ruled in these inquests and the juries that deliberated on them believed that the killing of these young men was done under a set of circumstances that allowed the murder to be lawful instead of what it really was. Plain old murder. murder? Yeah. Yeah, it's just a murder. The Northern Star, a Chartist-run newspaper at the time, published this after the shooting on August 20th, 1842. Quote, people could scarcely believe their senses. Riots had happened before in Preston, but never before had the military been ordered to fire. Another attachment of the 7th Rifle Brigade, about 150 in number, were marched into town, and the 72nd were marched out, no doubt to stem popular fury, it being the almost unanimous opinion that the mayor ought to be tried for willful murder, end quote. I mean, I'm not disagreeing. Yeah. The Preston Strike and the Loon Street Riot were known later as part of the 1842 General Strike, also called the Plug Plot Riots. The plug plot refers to when factory workers, quote, were stopped from working by the removal or drawing of a few bolts or plugs in the boilers so as to prevent steam from being raised, end quote. So basically stopping all the steam power from powering the machines. Got it. The Chartist movement eventually ended without having accomplished any of what it set out to do. But many of their ideals would later be included in the Reform Acts of 1867 and 1884. 150 years after the riot, on August 13, 1992, the Preston Martyrs statue, designed by Gordon Young, was unveiled at roughly the same spot on Loon Street in front of the Corn Exchange building where the riot took place and the four martyrs lost their lives. Mm. The memorial is inspired by Goya's painting, The 3rd of May, 1808, that depicted Spanish civilians being executed for resisting Napoleon's troops. Mm. The plaque on the statue reads as follows, quote, Remember, remember, people of proud Preston, that progress towards justice and democracy has not been achieved without great sacrifice. Remember, remember, people of proud Preston, to defend vigorously the rights given to you. Strive to enhance the rights of those who follow. This plaque is dedicated to the memory of those workers who were shot and killed on or near this monument on Saturday, 13th of August, 1842, during the Chartist-led strike in order to secure a fair day's pay for a fair day's toil. Bernard McNamara, age 17, George Sourbutts, age 19, William Lancaster, age 25, John Mercer, age 27. Other workers were also very seriously injured and were unable to ever work again. This plaque is dedicated by the trade unions of Preston to the memory of all workers worldwide who are killed, injured, or suffer ill health or detriment as a consequence of work. Remember the dead, fight for the living. End quote. Oh. And this last thing is going to really piss you off. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready for it. In 2012. No. On Good Friday. No. A live event was broadcast from Preston under the direction of Fern Britton that included three pre-recorded dramas based in the town of Preston. 
In the segment that detailed the Preston strike of 1842, it was written from the perspective of mill owner and mayor of Preston, Samuel Horrocks. Awesome. And this was in 2012? Mm-hmm. The mayor's anguish at how to deal with the agitators was meant to mirror that of Pontius Pilate. And staying wow. true to the Bible, the mayor literally washes his hands of any responsibility over the death of protesters. Awesome. Yep. Wow. Who thought that was a good idea? I don't know, but it came out on Good Friday. And that is the infuriating tale of the Preston strike of 1842. That's so sad. It is very sad. But it's important to hear about. Things haven't really changed in terms of protesting. Yep. I think there are definite parallels between what happened then and what has recently happened here and continues to happen. Yeah. It is a very cool statue. I'll, I'll have pictures of it posted. It's a very moving statue. Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. I'm Darren Marlar, host of Weird Darkness, where I share stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. Recently named one of the best storytellers in podcasting for 2019 by Podcast Business Journal. Whether it's ghosts, cryptids, true crime, or creepypastas, you'll find it all in Weird Darkness. Episodes uploaded seven days a week. Search for Weird Darkness in your favorite podcast app. Or listen now at WeirdDarkness.com. This week's podcast plug is the Weird Darkness podcast. This one's a little bit different and I really enjoy it because it's it's a podcast that kind of covers a little bit of everything. It covers things that are like weird and creepy and there's true crime elements of it. There's paranormal stuff and it's all cool. kind of old as if it's like a radio drama. Okay. So kind of more performative than your normal podcast. Yeah. I was actually listening to a few episodes while I was finishing up cleaning the kids' playroom. Yeah. And there were definitely parts of it because it's got like the creepy background music to it and stuff. Uh, and there were definitely times where I was just like, I don't like being alone in this room anymore. <laughs> why am I home alone? I I do not like this. Why do I only have one light on in this dark, dark room that I'm in by myself and all of these creepy toys? Hopefully none of them will reanimate and want to murder me. Yep. Dolls are scary. They are. So... I encourage you to give it a listen. It's really great. And I will include a link to it in the show notes. Cool. And this week's listener question comes from our good friend, Mock. Hi, Mark. He wants to know, why is there a fucking heat wave in June? Global warming. Oh, or we can, we can do a slightly cuter one and just say the cicadas did it. They came from the depths of hell. So, you know, they brought the heat. With them. They brought the heat. They brought the pain. <laughs> They brought the heat and the pain. I mean, did you see that, like, they're causing, like, car accidents and stuff? Yep. Yeah. Oh, and then fun fact, apparently there are some nut jobs out there that think it's a good idea to eat cicadas, which, one, okay, don't gross. don't on it. It's, pro like, we think it's gross, but maybe they think it's freaking awesome. You shouldn't eat anything that's been pseudo-dead for 17 years. 
before reanimating and coming out of the earth. That's not a good idea. I'm just saying. That's how the mummy started. Right? I'm just saying. You shouldn't eat it. And also, the FDA got involved because apparently they have like shellfish properties. So if you have shellfish allergies, you're going to die if you eat one. So maybe don't eat one as a general rule. There's, they have shellfish properties? Yeah, like if you have a shellfish allergy and you eat a cicada, you will have the same allergic reaction as if you had eaten shellfish. Whoa. So that is an also super terrifying. Like, as if these bugs aren't disgusting enough. <laughs> let's, add, yeah. let's add more disgusting things to them. Yeah. I don't know why you're uncomfortable right now. <laughs> I am so uncomfortable. I'm gesticulating wildly with my hands. I don't know what yeah. to do with my hands. I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> What's something good you'd like to share this week now that I've ruined everybody's life talking about shellfish allergies and cicadas? Something good this week. I had a really cute date with my partner the Yay. other day. We played bingo and had jalapeno cream cheese wontons with raspberry dipping sauce. Mm. And then we went up for a walk so we could catch Pokemon. Nice. It was just a really good night. Gotta catch them all. And I didn't bring Willie because it was too hot. I didn't want him to walk around and hurt his feet. And he was really, really cute when I got home. He was waiting up for me in my room. Oh. And... Like just had the cutest little reaction. He does, he does like a, I call it a puppy car wash, but he'll, when he gets really excited, he wiggles through your legs. Oh yeah. I love that one. He does yeah. like the figure eight, like yeah, wiggle he, through your he, legs. He does like a little wiggle dance when he goes between your legs, like he's going through a car wash. I love it. I had several puppy car wash run throughs before it was okay to go to bed. So yeah, that was my, my good thing. What's your good thing? So my good thing. Until the harrowing tale of rescue. Yes. <laughs> my good thing involves my youngest. And so at school, they had this thing where they did like a camping day because it's almost like the last day of school. Mm-hmm. So they got to bring in like a sleeping bag, a pillow, a stuffed animal, some books, flashlight, and they basically had like a camp out. That's so cool. Yeah. And they did this last year too. So it's a, I think it's a cool thing they do with maybe the younger members of the elementary. I don't recall my oldest doing that in sixth grade. I'm pretty sure they only do it through like second grade, maybe. Yeah, that would make sense. But she had brought with this, her Eevee stuffed animal. And it's like a 12 inch tall Eevee Pokemon stuffed animal. But her really cool aunt got her for her birthday once. Yep. And it's currently her favorite stuffed animal. So she brought it to school and it didn't fit in her backpack. So she had to carry it. She got home and realized she left it on the bus and immediately freaked out. So my yeah. husband drove her to the school. The bus wasn't back yet. So he called the bus garage. They didn't see anything on the bus. I happened to have her bus driver's phone number. So I texted her. She said when she got to the garage, she checked the bus and it wasn't on there. And that she would have noticed somebody taking it because it was a very large stuffed animal. It was right. it was easy to spot. So then I reached out to her teacher and was like, did she leave it at school by chance? Like, do you have any recollection of a, a big stuffed animal being left in the classroom? She said, no, but I'll check. The whole night, she was inconsolable. Like, she was just, like, crying. She felt super bad about it. You know how parents will often say to their kids, someday you're going to be saying this to your kids? Yeah. At some point last night, probably when I was still cleaning, she said to Thomas, I should have taken better care of my things so it would last longer, which is the thing that he says all the time. If you don't take care of your things, they're not going to last a long time. 
No. <laughs> so she said that. That's so sweet and devastating. And she was like, I shouldn't have brought it to school. I should have brought one of my smaller stuffed animals to school. Mm. It was it was a whole thing. She even like wrote a note she put on her door that said, please don't talk to me about Evie because it makes me really sad. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it was bad. Oh. So I'm sitting here like I frantically texted Maddie and I was like, we have a situation. Send me the link to the Evie that you bought. So if I need yep. to buy a new one, I have the link and I can get it. Yep. I clicked it and I was like, if shit hits the fan and it's gone, gone, I can buy it and it'll be here by Saturday. Like, yep. Thank you, Amazon Prime. And thank you. So I anxiously awaited the verdict all day. And then when she came home, she said, my friend Emily picked it up and brought it home with her because she saw I left it on the bus and she didn't want anybody else to take it. That's such a good friend. So, and this girl lives just down the street from us. We are actually friends with her family. Her older sister is good friends with my oldest. So we went to her house. We were able to pick up Evie. My youngest was very, very happy to be reunited with her Evie stuffed animal. And it's a good thing because one, she kind of learned the value of her things. Yeah. And the whole lesson that you need to treat your things well if you want them to last a long time. Yeah. But two, it reaffirmed my faith in humanity that her friend found it and took care of it. Yeah. That her friend knew this was something that was really important to her and that she'd be Mm -hmm. really sad if she lost it. That was my good thing is that my faith in humanity was restored by a small child. That's usually how it goes. Mm -hmm. So thank you. You'll never hear this, but thank you for doing that. You should do something for that small child. Get her a meat stack shirt. (laughs) Well, we plan to give her something as a thank you for doing that. Maybe an evolution. I'll shut it down. Let's do it. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We're on YouTube. You can find us by searching for Yield Crime Podcast. We also have the link in our show notes. If you'd like to write or send us something, you can do so by sending it to our P.O. Box, Yield Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. You can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. You can submit your questions, send us gifts without the tea. (laughs) Trampoline. Send us trampoline gifts. Combine the two. Just like. Give us a shout out saying that you're sending a trampoline so that the the post office doesn't get mad at us. <laughs> that won't fit in our PO box. <laughs> give me an, a stern warning. A great way to support the show, if you can't do it financially, is to leave a five-star rating and review. This week's comes from Tim, and he left this review on Podchaser. And it says, the format of their show is great. I like that they focus on particular story in each episode and cite all their sources up front. The sisters have a good chemistry and bring humor to their commentary that doesn't distract from the story. Highly enjoyable. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. So nice. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee with a one-time donation, or you can also join our Patreon and get something back by donating for as little as a dollar a month. That'll get you early ad-free access to all of our content. And obviously, if you donate more per month at $5, 10 or $15 tiers, you will get more benefits. This month, if you make a purchase at our Public merch store, all proceeds will be donated to Outright Action International, which is an organization that fights for the human rights of the LGBTIQ people pretty much everywhere in the world, awesome. which is a super great organization and a really great cause. 
And you can also purchase some of our limited edition Pride merch. On that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs>